Well, I'm going to just continue. We've been in the book of Romans for uh, 14 weeks now. And um, today I'm going to continue on. We're near the end, and so we just wanted to keep the momentum going and finish out. We had such a great, uh, you know, dramatic expression of uh, the triumphal entry. So there's your Palm Sunday moment. (laughs) But I'm going to be in the book of Romans in chapter 14 today, and um, there's too much to try to catch you up on every chapter. I hope you guys have been enjoying it. It's, there's lots of wonderful foundation, and God is, is making us a more f- uh, biblically foundation uh, church, theologically sound. And is what we're doing is we're just giving you an overview of these chapters. There's so much that we're not saying in every single chapter. That would take a, two or three years if we were to just go line on line. Not to say that we shouldn't or wouldn't do that, but we're just hitting the mountaintops in a lot of these passages. And so um, today we're in chapter 14. You know, I think if, <clears throat> if asked, I think a lot of Christians would say that they want to see people born again. They want to see the, them gathered together here in the church. Um, but sometimes when those newly saved uh, people actually show up, Some of them have very rough histories. Some are broken still. Um, When they start to show up, all of us who have been cheering and shouting for them to come up, sometimes we get a little perturbed by them. And we uh, end up not getting involved. We don't want to be in the process of actually walking them through healing. Or teaching them the ways of God. Probably, I would say most of us who are long-term Christians, we, we actually prefer to gather with other long-term Christians and have warm fellowship together. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? It's, there's no guilt, there's no shame that we want to worship and, and be with others who we don't, uh, that we think very similar to. But there's something wrong when that's all we want to do. When we've lost our love for the newly saved and the troubled, you know, for those who Paul calls here in Romans 14, he calls them weak in faith. Jesus calls them his little lambs. Little lambs who he asked Peter to take care of and to look out for. Well, that same task that that Jesus gave to Peter, it's also on us now to look out for the little lambs. And you know, people come into God's family with all sorts of backgrounds. And some are very wounded. Some are fresh out of addiction. Some are still struggling or fresh out of being under a demonic influence. It's these little lambs that Paul is talking about who are weak in faith. He's telling us as mature believers to be gentle with these people. Don't bully them. Don't criticize them. Receive them into your gatherings. Receive them into your heart. And yes, 
Yes, there are moral boundaries that we can't ignore. They need addressed, but, but we have to do our very best to wait patiently and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. And so in this passage today that we're going to look at, Paul is addressing both the strong in faith and he's talking to the weak in faith. And he's telling them, love each other. He tells the strong not to despise the weak. And he tells the weak not to judge the strong. But as we might expect, his, Paul's main focus of his message is primarily on the strong, the mature. Because unless they choose to welcome the weak and be a part of the healing process, the church in Rome is going to stop growing. So let's read in chapter 14, starting in verse 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now I want you to catch what he just did. He called out vegans and vegetarians. <laughs> You're weak. I didn't say it. Paul... The man of God told you veggie-loving freaks, you're weak. Eat a steak. Okay. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For, this, for to this end Christ died lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, in this section, Paul is teaching a very diverse group. It's a growing church, and he is teaching them how to walk according to love. God was bringing in people from very different backgrounds. Some were Jews who were just starting to learn to live in the righteousness that comes only by faith and having to now reject legalism. Some were Gentiles who were learning to now live into obedience to God's righteous laws instead of the lawlessness that they had been living in before. 
the church was going to reach the city of Rome, or anywhere for that matter, it would have to maintain a wide open door policy. It was going to have to be a place warmly welcoming for all sorts of people. And that meant for those who were mature in faith, they were going to have to roll up their sleeves and help care for the steady stream of new faces coming in through the doors. It was a good problem to have. But it was a problem nonetheless. Because some of the mature believers had begun to look down on those who were less knowledgeable or those who had some really painful histories that they had to overcome. And to make matters worse, some of the new believers were shocked at what they saw some of the long-term believers doing. So let's walk through some of these passages so we can have maybe a clear understanding of what Paul was saying in this chapter. So in verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So what he's saying is draw close to those who are new believers or still, still wounded. But when you do, make sure that you enter into a true friendship. A true friendship with that person. Not just to watch for an opportunity to criticize them because you think they're doing something wrong. We all come to Christ with baggage. Who remembers when they came to Christ? Do you remember the care and the patience that older Christians had with you? Paul wants us to be warm. He wants us to be welcoming. He wants us really high on patience and really low on criticism. And then he goes on into verses 2 and 3 and he says, One person believes that he may eat anything. While the weak person eats only vegetables. There it is again. I'm sorry. (laughs) Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. What Paul's saying here is telling us to be patient. Be patient with those who are less knowledgeable than you. Or have these painful histories to overcome. You know, people who are sincere believers, they vary widely in what their conscience allows them to do. And that's okay. Some people's faith is still weak in areas. But that doesn't give us, the, who, who our faith is strong, the right to look down on them or, or push them out of our lives, which eventually just pushes them out of the church. Nor should we who see another believer doing something that my own conscience won't permit me to do, neither should we judge that person. Deciding that they're some kind of sinner or questioning whether they're even saved. God has drawn close to all who believe in his son. So let me give you just a little bit of context of what this scripture, what Paul's talking about, eating and all this weirdness and not eating certain foods. So Paul knew that many, in the, uh, many of the believers in Rome had some very strong feelings about whether or not to eat the meat that was sold in the public markets. 
And he knows that they're having this struggle because most of the meat that was sold in the market comes from animal sacrifices that were conducted in pagan temples that were scattered throughout the city. And so this animal was presented as an offering to these gods or goddesses in a service that most of the time was filled with demonic spirits. And so many of these Gentiles have only recently come out of that environment. Many of them were in those services where these animals were offered to these gods and goddesses. And many of them felt the demonic power in those ceremonies. Some of these Gentiles who were fresh believers had, had come out of, of, of ceremonies where they had watched Pagan priests pronounced curses that actually struck people down. So they knew demons existed. And they wanted nothing to do with me left over from these terrible, terrible ceremonies. It would stir up old memories. Old feelings that we just want to forget. Now there were other Christians who had been out of these temples so long. That in their minds, guess what? It's just meat now. It's just meat. By the time that you've given God thanks for it, there's no demon attached to it anymore. I thank God for it. I've set it apart. I've consecrated this unto God. And then there were some Jews who, they didn't want to eat any type of meat unless it had been killed according to the very strict biblical guidelines. So the opinions of what was okay and not okay to eat, it was all over the map. And guess what? Paul wasn't condemning any of them for how they believed. He simply wanted everyone to honor each other for where they were at in their faith journey. And let's keep in mind again that Paul is talking about non-salvation issues. The issue of what to eat or not eat has nothing to do with their salvation. And so Paul is telling us, hey guys, leave it alone. Leave it alone. And then he goes on in verse 4. And he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, let's keep the fact before us that what really matters most is what Jesus thinks about us, not what other people think about us. God knows what's in each, each heart. We don't. Do you know what's in my heart right now? No, you can maybe try to read me or take my temperature. I have a lot of people in my life who do that. How's Tom feeling today? My answer is shut up. How's that? Does that tell you anything? He needs a hug. That's not true. That is not true at all. Nothing, nothing, a hug will solve nothing for me. I, 
I promise it. We don't know what's in each other's heart. We think we know. But we don't know. And remember, Jesus is totally committed to every one of us. Even those who seem to be weak. He never, ever abandons us because we're weak. In fact, he's patiently, patiently working with us to get rid of our fears, to build up our faith until we are standing firmly in him. That's the work of Christ. And then Paul says in verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So here Paul is saying, are we on verse 5? Yeah, we are. Paul was, he was hearing arguing going on about, you know, which day should we worship in? Well, it's got to be this day, you know, because the Jews, they preferred Saturday because that was the Sabbath, right? Well, the Gentiles, they were preferring Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so some are arguing about whether Christian can still observe other Sabbaths or should we even worry about the new moon festivals or the special feasts, you know, that are a part of the Israel yearly calendar, Paul says, frankly, guess what, guys? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Whether you do or don't, what matters is that you follow what's in your conscience to do. To the best of your ability, do what you believe to be right in following God's command to honor the Sabbath. That's what he's communicating. In verse 6, he says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. You know, if someone wants to worship on a certain day, they're free to do that. With the understanding, of course, that they are in no way earning their righteousness. Or that they've become, you know, spiritually superior to someone who doesn't worship on their special day. Those whose conscience allows them to eat meat sold in the markets, they should go ahead and eat the meat. And those whose conscience will not permit them to do it, you should not eat. Whichever course a person takes, what they do should be done as an act of worship unto the Lord. Not just a behavior of convenience. Everything a believer does should be done for one reason. To please Jesus. That's the goal. Above all other goals. This goal needs to be what directs how we live our lives as well as how we will die. And pleasing Jesus will still be our highest motive even after we die. As we live out our new existence in eternity 
It'll still be bringing him praise. It'll still be worship. It'll still be, be what, what delights you. How can we delight you even more in our, in our song and in our, our lives? He goes on in verse 8 and he says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. As believers, our greatest desire has to be to please him, even if his will leads to our death. And I know that can sound romantic to be a martyr, but sometimes the death we're talking about is the death of your time. The thing we are most stingy with. And your money. Number two, we're tied right there. Sometimes we have to follow him to death of our agenda, our way of doing things. We have to submit it all to him. So issues like what we eat or what day we worship, they become opportunities to exercise our submission to him. In verse 9, he says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. By the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus became Lord over all humans, whether they are dead or alive. And this means that nothing's going to change after we die. We will still be the Lord's, and he will still be our Lord. And our judge. And then Paul goes on in verse 10 and he says, why do, you, why do you pass a judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So guess what? It's not up to us to decide who belongs to him or who doesn't. I'm not that guy. It's way above my pay grade. Each of us are going to stand before him and give an account for our lives. God alone knows the true motives in that person's heart. And that fact, it should cause us to examine ourselves rather than each other. He will look to see if we have selflessly loved people, especially those who are weak. Because most people aren't able to grow spiritually all by themselves. In fact, if they are left uncared for, many will function at a level of barely being saved. Their character and morals remain mostly unrefined. And their faith will stay weak. And if they take no self-initiative, their faith can actually die out altogether. Now, yes, God, God will keep to fight us spiritually alive. But the primary way that he does that, guess who it's through? It's us. It's us, baby. 
We're the ones that he's trying to constantly work on their behalf through. God needs loving communities of believers willing to care for the weak and the wounded. But sadly, so many of us, we, when we grow up and grow strong in our faith, we also grow impatient with the weak. Instead of helping, we actually demand more care for ourselves. What about me? We don't take ourselves to those who are weak. We don't take the responsibility to help raise God's family. And Paul says, we can't do that. It's not okay. So here's some questions to ask yourself. How many little lambs, how many weak in faith am I willing to love? Do new believers or children or broken people, do they annoy me? Who's being healed or growing in faith because of my influence? Who am I discipling? When was the last time you came to church spiritually thirsty because you had poured out all you had to others? Do you remember who nurtured you when you were a young believer? How'd they do it? See, there's, a, there's a, a natural life cycle to this. There are seasons when each of us needs really intensive care. And then there are seasons when we start pulling our own weight. We start to grow selfless because it's not about us anymore, right? It's about how I can help others. How can I start teaching others what's been taught to me? And then keep doing that for the rest of my life. Now, Paul goes on in verses 13 through 19, and he's going to continue on this theme of growth and having patience and letting people grow in Christ. So again, I ask, who remembers what condition you were in when you got saved? For some of us, that's an easy question to answer because it's only been in with the last few months or years. But for others, the encounter took place so long ago, we hardly recognize the person that we once were. We've changed so much over the years. It's like we're talking about someone completely else. Sometimes we think about the memories of those yesterday years. They make us laugh, make us blush, make us cringe. Lots of cringing. We tend to not even want to think about those days anymore. We've moved on. Because over the years, God has changed us. The process wasn't easy, though, was it? We often had to learn things the really, really hard way. And sometimes we had to keep learning the same lesson over and over and over and over and over and over again (laughs) until it finally stuck. And no one, no matter how old, would say, I've arrived. All of us, we are painfully aware of how far we still have to go. 
And that's the point Paul is trying to teach us now in verses 13 through 19. Because he's reminding us that spiritual growth, it takes time. And guess what? Since God was patient with us, while that change was taking place, guess what we get to do? We get to pass it right on, that same grace. Get to pass it on and give it to those who are now coming after us. Their growth will take time just like ours has. And as Paul will point out, being patient doesn't mean abandoning people and letting them live it all by themselves. It means refusing to exercise our own rights in some cases and putting the good of others ahead of ours. In other words, it means loving them like Jesus loved them. What an idea. So let's read in 13. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Listen to that. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good being spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. See, part of the problem is that we tend to, we, we like people who agree with us. You know, I think the term is echo chamber, right? We love the echo chamber. Hey, that sounds like me. We tend to agree with and, and love to have around us people who, who think like us and agree with us. And we tend to argue with and walk away from those who don't. You know, in Titus 3.10, Paul uses the term factious man. Or a person who stirs up division. And he, he warns Titus in, in chapter 3, verses 10, he says, As for a person who stirs up division, which is a factious man, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see, a factious man is someone who forces people to choose sides. It works for women, too, just so you know. <laughs> he or she can divide a community using things like doctrinal arguments or even by gossip or gathering people's loyalty to themselves. Kind of like King David's son Absalom did when he rebelled against his father. It's easy to spot those who do this in glaring and unhidden ways. But see, there can be a tendency in all of us to do this. What do we do when we encounter someone who doesn't agree with us? We may spend some try time trying to convince them. You're wrong. Let me help you. See how wrong you are. 
And then if they don't come to see things our way, well, guess what? What do we do? We cut off the relationship. And then we do the, the you know, the, the wise thing and we warn others to watch out for this person, right? That happens right here in this church. The problem is all these broken relationships we have here, here, they've become hidden little divisions within the church until we become full of these micro-fractures. It may look good on the surface, but up close on further inspection, it's very brittle. It's what micro-fractures do. And if any real stress comes along, it quickly falls apart. I'm amazed at how quickly we fall apart in our relationships sometimes. That's what was happening in Rome. And Paul says in verse 13, he says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to put a st- or but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one whom Christ has died. So Paul is trying to get the Roman church to see that in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus is our only judge and that he's going to judge each one of us, it is unnecessary and wrong for us to judge each other on non-essential issues. Now, he is not saying that the elders of the church have no responsibility to confront false doctrine or discipline immoral behavior. That's not happening. That's not what he's saying. There are doctrinal truths which, if they are distorted or lost, it will prevent people from being saved. And there are categories of immoral conduct. If they persistently are practiced, they will present or prevent a person from, who claims to be a Christian from being included in the resurrection of the righteous. So we can't take what Paul says here and expand it into this thing of no one, no correction. There's no rebuking, no teaching. We don't do that. That's not what he's saying. He is addressing non-essential matters where a person's conscience is the deciding factor. Again, remember, he's been talking about stuff like what day should we worship on, right? Can I eat food sacrificed to an idol or not? And these types of issues, believers need to respect a person's freedom of conscience. We shouldn't impose our own standards concerning non-essential issues on someone else. Instead, our attention should be focused on ourselves. Examining our own motives and behavior to see if we're possibly maybe acting in a loveless pride with all my rights. Paul wants us to consider that by exercising your rights, you actually could negatively influence another person. Is your example potentially causing someone who is weak to fall back into unbelief? 
Or is it going to possibly reintroduce them to an addictive bondage that they had escaped? Is your example helping them grow or is it hindering it? And he goes on in verse four, or 16, he says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is such an important question that Paul is answering right here. Paul is answering the question that any mature believer, and I guarantee you've asked this question, anything, a question that we've all asked as mature believers, why should I allow my freedom to be hindered by someone else's conscience? Why should I be forced to modify my behavior for someone's weak faith? And Paul's answer is simple. Because as a Christian, I have chosen to follow Christ's example and walk according to love. And love does no wrong to a neighbor. If I love like Jesus loves, my main focus will not be on pleasing myself, but rather on doing that which protects and edifies those who are weak. My concern won't be to win a theological argument, but to live in such a way that I can help as many as possible get saved. God's work on earth is not determined by whether a person does or does not eat meat or drink wine. What promotes salvation of the lost and the spiritual growth of believers is preaching righteousness that comes only through faith. Believers worshiping and ministering side by side in peaceful harmony and teaching people to find relief from their suffering, not in alcohol, but in the joyful presence of the Holy Spirit. See, when we serve Christ by doing these things, we are very pleasing to God. And as time passes, our good reputation with unbelievers grows as well as with believers. Paul invites us, he's saying, join with me in choosing to do things that actually promote peace. That's what the kingdom is about, peace. Peace with other believers rather than strife. Seek to make people strong in their walk with God rather than expose them to temptation because your rights are on the line. So what do we do when we do disagree? How do we disagree with honor? Paul is teaching us how to relate to those with whom we disagree, even when we're sure we're right. Right? God's goal for his people to remain unified and walk together is number one. That doesn't happen by accident. It's a decision that we have to live out in every relationship, relationship by relationship by relationship. It's a choice each of us makes, especially when we encounter someone we consider weaker in faith or wrong on a topic. So here's six steps I think Paul can give us to help us walk in love. Number one, don't judge. When I discover a soul-threatening sin or doctrinal error that needs to be handled along biblical guidelines, I should do it privately. Otherwise, 
It's time to change the subject and refuse to allow our differences of opinion to divide us. Next, don't abandon. I need to remember how long it took me to learn some lessons. I need to be patient. I need to stay in relationship with the person rather than separate from them. Abandoning them isn't God's way to avoid arguing. Number three, don't push. It's a terrible mistake that to, to cause someone to violate their conscience. A person's conscience matters even if it lacks knowledge. Our desire to please God is what pleases God. So if I encourage you to violate your conscience in your mind, you are disobeying God. I'm actually eroding your character and thereby making you vulnerable to further violations. So here's what to look for. Is the person, is the person trying to earn righteousness or are they trying to please God? That tells you where to land on how you handle the situation. Are they trying to earn something from God? Or are they genuinely trying to love God with what they're doing? Number four, don't be cynical. We've got to let people change and not hold them captive to their past. I think we sometimes are really good at this when it comes to new believers. We're all positive. We're all, you know, giggles and smiles. Oh, you're special and sweet. It's with mature people that we don't do this well with. We need to remember God is at work even when we can't see it. Yes, it takes time. Trust takes time. But there's a difference between caution and cynicism. Number five, don't mislead. People are watching us. They follow our example far more than our words. And whatever I do, I must always consider the weak people the weak in faith, the little lambs, people, again, who are coming out of spiritual deception, they're coming out of idolatry, they're coming out of legalism, drunkenness, sexual sin, and addictions. There are people who are still counting the days that they've been clean and sober. There are people who have been raised all of their lives to believe certain things are right or wrong. Is it possible that my example might encourage someone to do something that will cause them to fall back into unbelief or reduce them and reintroduce them back into an addictive bondage? We have to ask that question. And then number six, we can't forget. This is a person that Christ has died for, an eternal spirit who is profoundly loved by God. See, Paul, he wants us to remember that the Christian life isn't a matter of a few small adjustments. It is a radical reorientation of everything I do. No longer do I live to please myself. I'm now living to win every possible person to Jesus Christ. This is the way Paul lived. And he invites you 
and me to imitate him. And what's even more importantly is that this is the way Jesus lived. Read all the stories of all the sinners he encountered. And Jesus demands that I pick up my cross and that I follow him. Amen. Here's your action plan. got the questions I asked us earlier. How many little lambs am I willing to help? Do new believers, children, or broken people annoy me? Who's being healed or growing in faith because of my influence? Who am I discipling? When was the last time you came to church thirsty because you'd poured out all you had on others? Who nurtured you? And then here's a couple of new ones. Have you separated from someone over a non-essential issue? Who do you no longer talk to because of an issue or a difference? What steps could you take to heal that relationship? And of course, please read Romans chapter 15 and do a hear journal. Discuss it in your discipleship group. And we're memorizing Psalm 27.4. One thing I've desired in this I seek, to behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life in his temple. 